The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Rock Ross means the one, the only, the beast from the east. Tammy, the Terror Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. That's a little bit better. You've been kind of fucking like I've been on Well, I'm kind of irritated with you right now, but okay. It's not my fault. So here's what happened. We recorded this damn episode, and there's something wrong with the program, I think, because I hit stop, and it activated abort and restart. The buttons aren't that close together. Just do your damn presentation. Wow, that makes me think that you did it on accident again. No, I did not. (laughs) I'm innocent. So, today we're actually talking about part two of the Ballista Axe Murder House. And today I'm going over the actual, the coroner's inquest. Because um, it actually kind of sheds a little bit more light on the Josiah's family. So, um... The day after the bodies of the Moore family and the still injured girls were discovered, Dr. Lindquist, the county coroner, ordered a coroner's jury to convene for a formal inquest regarding the deaths. Since this is an unfamiliar process, I decided to find out what it entailed. And I did actually find that the best description came from the Encyclopedia Britannica. I can't speak right now. Which, you know, we all know is our Google of yesteryear. Nothing? Nada. I'm out of encyclopedia jokes. You're out of encyclopedia jokes? <laughs> so, during the era when the murders occurred, the practice of summoning a coroner's jury was still utilized. The system originated in medieval England and is virtually non-existent today. The purpose of the coroner's jury was to gather a group of between 6 and 20 jurors, I guess, whoever they had on hand, right, to help the coroner determine the deceased cause of death. The coroner's, jury, the coroner's jury, I can't speak, was similar to the practice of convening a grand jury. However, both processes were practiced back then. Therefore, they never participated in a trying case in court. They did review the evidence collected to that point that the investigators and district attorney felt would be relevant should they determine a crime had been committed. So after reviewing the evidence presented, the coroner's jury issued a verdict meant to reveal when, how, and where a person in question died. If they decided the death was a result of manslaughter or murder, they could also uh, they were also allowed to name any potential suspects. And if a suspect was named, a suspect or suspects were named, the coroner was permitted to issue a warrant for the arrest. Now the people person or people arrested were held in jail until a grand jury determined whether or not to proceed with formal charges, which is, happens today, right? Um, so the coroner's jury has ceased to exist because critics of the process claimed it, it was basically an unnecessary formality. And there are several reasons why they felt this. Because they were all drunk. Yeah, like I am right now. Yeah. Figured you alcoholic. <laughs> Whatever, freak. So the people assembled to sit on the coroner's jury were your average layman. Therefore, the majority of them weren't able to comprehend the complex medical evidence that was presented to them. Because, I mean, we talked about this when when we recorded this the first time, that um, 
you and I have difficulty, even though I grew up in the medical industry, deter- I mean, comprehending complex medical evidence. Yeah, true, true. You know? And so for the most part, the members of the coroner's jury just, quote, rubber stamped the opinion of the county coroner. So they were merely yes-men conveying to concur with what the coroner believed to be true. And since the majority of the coroner's juries that were assembled just went along with the coroner's suggestion, the district attorney's office could no longer justify the costs. And then, finally, the reason why it was disbanded is because even if the coroner's jury ruled a person's death was caused by an accident or natural causes, if the prosecutor suspected foul play was involved, they would continue to investigate based on their suspicions anyhow. So... The coroner's jury was a moot point all the way around in the long run. You know what I mean? Now, he, Dr. Lindquist didn't arrive on the scene until several hours after the bodies of the victims were discovered. So he was there to go over the crime scene himself. And once he did, he met with the with Hank Horton and the Montgomery County Sheriff, Orrin Jackson, to review the information they had gathered. By the time he finished meeting with them, it was already late afternoon. However, he still ordered a coroner's jury inquest into the deaths. The members of the jury didn't assemble until several hours later. In the early evening hours, the jury was allowed to actually enter the house to view the bodies themselves. Um, That was after they had been fermenting for all day. Yeah, I mean, quite a while. Yeah, that's disgusting. Because, I mean... I have been around a couple of dead bodies for natural causes that, you know, as soon as they take their final breath, it starts to emit an odor that you cannot even comprehend. Oh, yeah. And people don't realize that. They think it takes several hours or several <laughs> days. No, it does not. Um, let's see. Ba, 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 ba. So, after. Because actually going over that type of evidence of viewing the bodies in that era, live and in person, was more effective than any photograph they could they could produce. Because, you know, that was back in the era of black and white film. Correct. So, um, then it wasn't until much later, approximately 10 p.m., when the district attorney released the bodies to the undertaker. So, that was all... It was well over 12 hours after the bodies were discovered that they were released to go to the county undertaker. So that's just gross. Soupy. Ew, Scott. Since it was already very late, the coroner's jury didn't convene until the morning of June 11th. During the inquest process, 14 people were called to give their testimony regarding what they had witnessed. Uh, those witnesses and testimonies included, the first one was Mary Pickham, the mayor, the the mayor, the neighbor of the Moors. You know, she talked about how she had gone out early in the morning to do her laundry like she always did, but it wasn't until about 7 a.m. when she realized no activity was coming from the Moore house. So she went over, knocked on the door, didn't hear a response, so she let the chickens out, and then she went to go check on the rest of the livestock. When she realized they were still in their pen, she made phone calls. Okay? Who did she call? Ghostbusters? No, she called Ed Seeley from the store, which is um, Josiah's employer. Gotcha. Employee, excuse me. And she called uh, Ross and his wife, the brother and sister-in-law. Oh, wicked. Wicked. Hang on. Somebody just text me. I apologize. Who's texting you? Nobody likes you. Apparently, I am in hot commodity for spam texts right now. <laughs> Asshole. Does that mean you're fake pork? Huh? Does it mean that you're fake pork? 
No, that's scientifically processed artificial meat. No, I'm not. Ew. <laughs> then we have Ed Seeley, who was uh, Josiah's employee. Now, he testified that he received a call um, from Mary saying that the animals hadn't been fed. So she went. he went over there, fed them, went back to the store, received another call from Josiah's sister-in-law. And asked if she he had seen Josiah yet. He said no. He hung up, uh, made some other phone calls himself. Um, and then he went over to the Moore house and went in, um, went in, saw what happened in the bo- the downstairs bedroom, left, and waited outside. And then Hank Horton came back out and said, somebody is dead or, quote, they have all they have been killed in every bed. He stated that after Horton said that, everyone exited the house. Horton locked it all up, secured the scene, and went to go get another doctor. And then Ed left and went and made phone calls to Omaha to talk to the John Deere representatives so they would know what was going on. And then the jury asked him if he knew of any enemies. And he said that Josiah had a brother-in-law that might have been a threat to him. Um, so they pressed Ed further and figured out that the name of the brother-in-law was Sam Moyer. And he also said that Moyer was the only person he could think of that could potentially want to harm Josiah and his family. And then he was excused. Then Dr. Cooper was call- was called to the scene. He was the first physician on the scene and he just basically did a walkthrough to, to confirm that everybody was dead. Right? So he had talked about how um, as they were walking through the house that he noticed that everybody's like face and head were covered. You know what I mean? Which was rather odd. You know, that's just like almost like a signature. You know what I mean? Right, right. Which kind of goes into play that this might be a serial killer. But you know that they kind of like strayed away from the serial killer theory because they didn't want to rest on their haunches waiting for more deaths to happen. You know? So then we have, then we went on to Jesse Moore. She was the wife of Ross Moore. And she said that um, she received a call from Mary asking if anything had happened to Charles Moore, the the father. And after she got off the phone, she called and talked to Ed. And a short time later, he phoned her back saying that he had called. He had tried calling Josiah's house, didn't get an answer. When he didn't get an answer, he called uh, the parents' house, Charles and Mary Moore. And learned that he was not, Josiah wasn't there, nor had he been there. And then to cover his bases, he called the house of John and Phoebe Montgomery, which were Sarah's parents. And he was told that they hadn't been there that morning either. Now, she also went on to say that later that morning, or perhaps early afternoon, she received a visit from one of her neighbors. And that's when she learned about the murders. And then she went back to the house later that evening and gathered some pictures to give to the press. Um, right before she was excused, they asked her if she knew of any enemies. She said no. Okay. <laughs> then we have Dr. Williams. He was the physician who actually examined the bodies of the deceased individuals. Now, he went through and described the positioning of each body. And he talked about how they found uh, Josiah and Sarah's body in the bed at the top of the stairs. And then they went into the south room and counted the children there. And then they went downstairs. And he said that he couldn't even recognize the children who were downstairs. Even though he said one of them looked familiar. And then he was asked whether or not um, sexual assault had taken place. 
And he said that he he looked. He says, I looked to see if there was any possibility if there might have been attempted intercourse or rape or something, but I didn't notice anything. Um, he also said that he didn't notice any weird footprints outside the house, nor did he smell any antiseptic as if somebody had tried to clean up. So, you know, basic, I mean, so basically you're just going along with everybody who was like in the vicinity. Then we have Edward Landers. He was a neighbor. He was visiting his mother's house, which, and she was a neighbor of the Moors. Now he talked about how he had heard a noise that night, but he didn't think anything of it. He thought it was just, um, let's see. Let's see, right before he drifted off to sleep, he said that he heard a noise that, quote, impressed him and that he thought sounded like a boy hooting for another on the outside somewhere. He indicated that he he heard the sound several times at regular intervals. However, he didn't really pay much attention to it since he didn't connect with anything that seemed unusual. A short time after that, he went to sleep. Then the next morning when he realized that that the family had been killed, he said it might have actually been a woman moaning. And then he was asked if he had seen any strangers in the area. He said that he had only seen two two men came to his or one man came to his house his mother's house on Saturday night, and they were called um, paper collectors or paper cleaners, and they had stopped by between t- around ten fifteen on June eighth. Now, paper cleaners was a term I'd never heard before, so I researched it, and from what I could tell. This is the only explanation that made any sense. When toilets were first introduced to the public, they were not flushable. Therefore, someone had to be responsible for cleaning out the systems. Apparently, holes were dug in the ground and someone had to go and collect the waste. Either that or the person who owned the toilet had to come up with a different method of removing the bucket of excrement. Those people, typically men, who were employed to go around to the residence to collect the waste bucket buckets were referred to as paper cleaners do you want that job <laughs> no i'm a bass you pat are you eating again maybe <laughs> i'm pregnant i'm eating for two you're pregnant yep mister i thought you were fixed no i'm, I'm pregnant that's why i self-identify as a fat pregnant chick oh so you want an excuse to eat for two goddamn right <laughs> so therefore okay next came Rossmore. he testified and basically just went over the events again and then he talked about i mean uh, over how he had received the call went over to his brother's house knocked looked through the windows didn't receive an answer couldn't see anything so he used his key to go inside and then when he saw the blood all over the bed sheets in the downstairs bedroom he stated i did not wait long enough to see anything else Instead, he went back to the porch and told Mary to collect Marshall Hank Horton. He, he was asked if he thought any suspects were responsible for the death of his brother, and he said he couldn't think of anybody. Then you have Fenwick Moore. He was another brother. Let's just uh, clarify. That's more, more, mores. That's more, more, mores, yes. There's a couple more mores coming up. So, anyways, Fenwick was called to the stand, and he just basically told him he didn't know anything regarding, he didn't have any information regarding Josiah's business dealings, nor did he have a clue who had wanted to harm the family, let alone kill them. So, he was dismissed. Then, Hank Horton came to the stand, 
And he talked about how he had gone to the house, saw the bodies, left, went and got Dr. Cooper. And before he was dismissed, he said that he didn't smell any peculiar odors in the house. Let, you know, that would indicate somebody had tried to clean up. Then you have Lee Van Gelder and Harry Moore. Lee Van Gelder. More, 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 Yeah, Harry Mormores. Now, Lee Van Gilder was Josiah's nephew. He was called to stand. He said that he had a conversation with Josiah on the night of, on the afternoon of the ninth. However, it was a short conversation, and he didn't know have any information on where his father could be found, which was a potential enemy of Josiah's. Then Harry Moore took the stand, and he testified that um, they asked him questions about Sam Moyer and Lee Van Gelder's father. And he said that, like his brother Fenwick, he didn't have any information about Josiah's business dealings or his personal affairs. And he couldn't tell them anything more than they'd already heard. Then you had Edith and Joseph Stillinger. Those were Lena and Ina's sister and father. They're not more, more, mores. No, they're not. They're Stillingers. Now, Edith talked about how um, she was... Uh, she received a call from Josiah asking if the girls could stay overnight. Since they were already close friends of the family, she said she didn't think her parents would have a problem with that, so she gave her permission. And then um, Joseph was called to the stand. He answered questions regarding the men he hired to work for him on the farm to see if any of them might have had a motive to kill the girls or the family. And then he was asked about whether or not he placed a call to the Moore house the morning of the 10th. And he replied, my wife did, yes. Now, they asked him what time she made the call. He said "Is all he remembered was that she told him that she had made three different calls, didn't get an answer, and but he didn't ask her what time she had made the calls because she had expected the children back in the morning. Then, finally, the final person to take the stand was Charles Moore, another brother. Now, he was asked whether or not he could confirm whether the axe that they thought was a murder weapon belonged to Josiah. He said that he couldn't say specifically whether that was his brother's axe, but he knew that Josiah kept one like it in his coal shed. Maybe he should have asked more people some questions. More people? Yeah. He should have asked some people, some more people some questions. Oh, asked more people questions. More oh, questions, my God. Yeah. That is like so many double whatevers. That my mind is boggled. So he also said that he knew that his brother typically locked the doors at night before he went to bed. Because he would go over there during the, you know, in the morning and have to wait for somebody to open the front door for him. Um, And that that front door that he usually accessed, which was right there in the front off the dining room. Um, had to, usually had the key left in it, and since they didn't find a key, it was unusual. So, I mean, that was the coroner's inquest. Basically, they were able to determine that the family had been killed, but they still had no idea who could have done it. And next week, I'm going to go over the list of suspects, which is extensive. I mean, extensive. Mm, how big is it, Tammy? It's extensive. But remember, this is still an unsolved case, so. So I got a question. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Have you ever been tied up, Tammy? I fucking knew it. I hate you. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. All right. No, Maria I have not. an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. 
Check us out on Medium, CrimeBeat.Medium, or where we get your blogs. Uh, let's see. Just type in Nat Brutal Nation. We should pop right up. The show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this on anybody else's podcast, they're thieving bastards. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.